and welcome to Tape Heads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tape Heads is the podcast where we select a VHS tape, either from my collection or Lindsay's collection. We watch it and then we talk about it. Lindsay, I wish I could read your mind to figure out what you thought about uh, your selection for this episode. Well, I did live commentary while we watched it together, so I think you know what I think, <laughs> but our listeners might know uh, not know what I think just yet. Uh, what, what did we watch? We watched What Women Want, one of my guilty pleasure movies. And by guilty pleasure, I mean I don't like to admit to people that I enjoy this movie so much. And why would you feel guilty about uh, not liking this charming Nancy Myers romantic comedy from 2000 starring Helen Hunt? What, what about it could possibly <laughs> make people uncomfortable? maybe a little Australian American person known as Mel Gibson who <laughs> hasn't really done so well in his more recent career. Yeah, it's it's funny because uh, we watched Lethal Weapon last night uh, unrelated to the podcast uh, just because uh, it seemed like something fun to put on and it's Christmassy uh, and it is that time of year. And everyone knows we've seen Die Hard a lot. Yeah, yeah. We, we gotta mix it up. Can't always watch Die Hard every day of December. But we were both that whole movie just thinking, man, this Mel Gibson's a good actor. It's too bad about all of the baggage that he has. It's it's just too bad we can't just appreciate him as an actor. And in this. It's, it's really sad and it's really interesting how much a person's private life and what they do and just being generally an awful person can really color their their career and their performances but I'm, I'm still it's one of those things where when i watch a mel gibson movie i think about it but i i can still see his his performance and appreciate what he's doing in a film and just reflect on the fact that he's a sexist misogynistic uh anti-semite racist you know this i think is one of the rare mel gibson movies where and I wouldn't say it, that knowing that about him helps the movie, but it is such a like story of redemption for this character who kind uh -huh. of starts off as a chauvinist and a, a, like a real dirtbag that you like want him to be better. And that's kind of like the public's relationship with Mel Gibson. So in a way, it's... Uh, Imagine how this wouldn't work if, like, Richard Gere was in this. <laughs> we always just tear apart Richard Gere. And sorry if anybody listening to this is a fan of Richard Gere, but I just am not. I It wouldn't have worked. Yeah. And it wouldn't have worked with Tim Allen, who was originally intended. Oh, that would have been a disaster. Yeah. That if this was, this was intended as a vehicle for Tim Allen, and I just, I mean, he is hateable. And you're supposed to hate the character at the beginning. Yeah, I was going through my mind of, because this came out in December of 2000, I was thinking of like the biggest leading men of that time. You know, right. your Tom Hanks's, your Tom Cruise's. Uh, certainly Tom Hanks could have gotten the redemptive side of it. Yeah. Basically to say, I feel like Mel Gibson is good at playing both sides of the arc of this character. Right. In a way that... I feel like I just don't know who else you could cast in this role. You know, it's funny that you mentioned Tom Cruise because I could totally see Tom Cruise in a role like this. Uh, and I, I think he could do that pretty well because he, he has uh, 
he can play that total asshole, but he also can play the hero. Mm -hmm. Tom Hanks plays a jerk in You've Got Mail, but he's just not enough of a jerk. I mean, he's a delight from beginning to end in that movie, (laughs) even though he's ostensibly supposed to be like big bad business. Yeah, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Yes, yes. Um, Before we get too far into this, uh, we did have... Five ads on this tape, which was a former blockbuster videotape. Oh, yeah. Uh, it has the please, uh, the, the uh, be kind rewind sticker. And uh, the tape was not rewound. And the tape was not rewound. Someone was not very kind. Oops. I think of these ads as summing up the year 2000 because it starts off with Lara Croft Tomb Raider starring Angelina Jolie. Yes, yes. Um, What were your thoughts on this movie when it came out? I remember being a little underwhelmed by it. I mean, I thought it was fun. It's a fun action movie. I think it's totally unnecessary that they padded her bra so much. (laughs) Like, really? Did you have to do that? The new Tomb Raider wasn't great, but I did admire that it allowed the actress to just have her own body. I think they are just trying to honor the source material of those pointy two-dimensional boobs. You don't need to. I mean, when you've got someone as hot as Angelina Jolie, you just didn't need to do it. Yeah. One of the things that struck me about this ad is just like how much during this time all action movies are trying to be the matrix and in the marketing was trying to make it feel like the matrix yeah it also became a really big thing to have all these video game movie you know movies kind of like resident evil also came out Mm -hmm. not that much later right yeah and and sort of a similar aesthetic to this like all the techno music and like sexy lead and a lot of like cgi things to battle Mm mm-hmm the second ad is a movie that I'm kind of embarrassed to say that I haven't seen because I know it's a big part of people's lives when it came out, uh, especially for our generation. Save the Last Dance with Julia Stiles. I love Julia Stiles. She's in The Prince and Me around this time. Mm-hmm. The Bourne Identity. They did her so dirty in the Bourne movies, but we don't have to get into that. Uh <laughs> There, this was kind of in the renaissance of dance movies in the 90s, early 2000s, uh, kind of after the that, you know, surge, uh, that surge of movies in the 80s, like Dirty Dancing and Flashdance. Bring It On, uh, Save the Last Dance. Step Up. Step Up. Step Up to the Streets. <laughs> um, which I, honestly, in the marketing, it took me a while to realize that was a sequel. Yeah. Oh, Honey. <laughs> Honey, yeah, the emergence of Jessica Alba, that's Mm -hmm. right, I forgot about that one. You Got Served, remember You Got Served? I, that sounds familiar, but I'm blanking It's about people who bust out really crazy dance moves and serve them. Ah. By doing, (laughs) I never actually saw it, can you tell? Yeah, it sounds like you're making it. There is a funny South Park uh, spoof of that film, um... Next one, the next ad is for a Chris Rock movie that I also have not seen, but I do not think is fondly remembered. It's like the umpteenth remake of Heaven Can Wait, and it's called Down to Earth. Yeah, I don't think I saw it. Yeah, it's about a guy who dies before his time, is put into the body of someone else. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, looks like a real fish-out-of-water comedy. I, I always felt like Chris Rock was such a talent who never really got, like, a great movie to 
like be a vehicle for his talent. Yeah, it seems like he always got sort of the Rob Schneider-ish kind yeah, of level of which stuff. Which isn't quite his lane. No. Because he had like head of state. He was had a bit role in Lethal Weapon 4. Uh, I don't know. I, I Maybe I'm forgetting one, but... It seemed like he, he was always... Oh, he was in a pretty bad movie with Anthony Hopkins or they're like CIA agents. Oh, jeez, I don't remember that at all. <laughs> bad company. But speaking of Tom Cruise, the fourth ad was the biggest box office success of the year 2000. Mission Impossible 2, MI2. <laughs> Another just like deeply indebted... To, well, it's hard to know who stole from who um, because John Woo was such a pioneer of like Hong Kong action movies that the Matrix kind of ripped off. But this feels like a ripoff of that ripoff. In oh, some really? Ways. You I, were so excited when this ad came out. Well, on. this was just like, this was such a cultural phenomenon. And it's one that it's kind of hard to understand now. I mean, Mission Impossible movies are still being made and they're still successful. I feel like this was kind of on another level. Yeah. In and, high school, one of my friends who happened to be in the Church of Scientology had a massive poster, like the size of posters that you see in the movie theater on her ceiling so that <laughs> over her bed so that when she went to sleep at night, she just could stare at Tom Cruise's face. Oh, wow. I mean, I get a kick out of this movie, but it has not aged well. It's a lot of like, like if you're a John Woo fan, you kind of get everything that you would expect, like doves flying all over the place and people shooting two guns at the same time and lots of slow motion. Like looking at it now, it's all just very, very silly, especially compared to some of the newer movies in this franchise. Interesting. It has a uh, Limp Biscuit song on the soundtrack that oh, was quite popular. Oh, that's so cool. I think they, <laughs> I think they even uh, remixed the... And then we get my favorite kind of ad. Do you remember what the last ad on this tape was? No. For the CD soundtrack. Oh. Well, it's available on CD and cassette, but they're mostly pushing the CD. And I find this kind of soundtrack ad hilarious because... They're songs from the movie, but they're not new songs. They're mm -hmm. all archival, like Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr. Classic stuff. Yeah, like, and so it's more just like a compilation of Rat Pack songs, plus like some Alanis Morissette. No, it's not Alanis Morissette. Uh, they show her, but it's Meredith Brooks. That's right. Yeah, Meredith Brooks. Her song, Bitch. Yeah, I love when... <laughs> When he's in the bathroom trying on all of the like women's, women's products. products and he's wiping the unf the the fogged up mirror after a shower and singing along to I'm a bitch. <laughs> I found that really like weird and charming in a way, even though his character is awful. So we should get into the into the movie, like what this is about. Yes, yes. Uh and in full disclosure, we did a little preparation for this. So not only did we watch Lethal Weapon just for fun, which happens to star Mel Gibson, but we also watched a little movie called What Men Want. Not terrible, I will say, What Men Want. I was sort of bracing myself for it to be bad. More because it's a remake and kind of new. And new, new comedy remakes tend not to be that good. Mm -hmm. But this one was... It was pretty fun, and it has a similar premise. So what women want, basically, is about a man who is a terrible person 
he doesn't really understand he's a terrible person and he thinks he's charming and kind of gets with away with all the shit that he pulls and he's really manipulative and just as looks at women as objects or you know things to conquer or defeat or whatever he doesn't really see them as fully fledged human beings who are complicated and have emotions and needs and all this stuff he electrocutes himself one night accidentally accidentally of course <laughs> and suddenly can hear all women's thoughts including a dog which i find kind of offensive that was like, a little why, too far yeah why does he why does he also hear a dog's thoughts and i don't know i think that the problem with being able to hear a dog's thought thoughts is that just has much crazier ramifications than hearing the thoughts of other human beings because that would be like the scientific find of the century that like dogs think similar thoughts to humans well i don't know because we only hear the dog thinking hey i need to pee that's true but so there's something like just otherworldly about being able to hear an animal's thoughts i I just feel like i don't know I just don't, I feel like it kind of equates dogs and women in a way. Which is funny because this is a Nancy Myers movie. And yeah, but I mean, they're doing it for humorous effect. Yeah. So I get it, but it's also kind of like, come on, did we need that? <laughs> I don't know if we needed that. Ultimately, this film is a journey of a complete, utter asshole, terrible person learning how to see women as human beings and respect them and treat them as if they have actual worth to him. And then he becomes a better person. He works at an ad agency, a very like uh, testosterone fueled ad ad agency run by Alan Alda, the ultimate he man. Yeah, I don't uh, know if it's that testosterone well, heavy. Well, you get the idea that all, the men are running the, the show. Men and the men are running women the show. Are treated like shit. All their ad campaigns seem to be based around sex, at least the ones that Mel Gibson right. has shoehorned. And they suddenly realize, like, wait, we need to tap the female market. We need to bring in someone who knows, uh, you know, what women want. Oh, we forgot women matter. (laughs) And uh, Helen Hunt is kind of like a foil to Mel Gibson because she gets that promotion that he wanted. I think it's the creative director of the agency. And so, of course, once he can start hearing women's thoughts, this guy doesn't transform right away. He immediately starts stealing her ideas and making her look bad so that he can usurp her role. Yeah. But what's interesting, so you have this kind of complicated arc of this person who is a terrible man learning to understand and have sympathy, empathy with women that he did not have before. And he ultimately kind of becomes a better person in what men want. The the, the premise is similar in that she has this kind of mystical event happen. She's not shocked. She drinks this magic tea. So suddenly she can hear men's thoughts. And rather than kind of moving from being a terrible person to being a uh, more complicated, you know, uh, better person, she's really kind of shifting from being undermined by the men at her work who don't respect her to understanding their vulnerabilities and kind of getting the upper hand to be able to advance her career and her life and she does she's i mean there's a little bit of complication about her like she's not uh they have a sex scene where she's 
kind of really rough with this guy that she's dating and you realize that okay she's not thinking about how he feels and it's weird putting it's it's kind of interesting having that scene where it's this uh woman who's not being sympathetic to the to the male partner or thinking about his pleasure she's just she's just getting what she wants and then getting out of there which is kind of not that that's kind of the um opposite of the stereotype so I think they kind of have that challenge for her to overcome on a more interpersonal level in her romantic life uh, where, you know, she kind of tries to, she tackles that and becomes a better partner in that respect. But overall, she's not necessarily using this to become that much better of a person. It's really focused more about her, more of her kind of personal growth in relation to her career and her goals. Um, but there, there is, a, I don't want to totally disregard that personal element. It's there, but it's really not the focus the way it is for what women want. Because really what women want is not at all about his career advancement because he's already had so much. He actually even gets fired at the end as has no career. <laughs> and I think uh, one of the kind of the stark differences, obviously, is in what women want, we have a white male lead with a lot of privilege um and it's kind of about him acknowledging some of that and then you know in what men want we have a black female lead where it's her confronting white male privilege and and the impact of of that on her at work it's another sort of reversal in that in that sense so it was definitely interesting seeing these kind of back to back because they're starkly different movies even though they're using the same sort of device uh, to to move the story along. And there's a Chinese version of this story as well, isn't there? Yes, starring Andy Lau. I did my... not see that, but I think you did. Yeah, so the one with Andy Lau is actually super... Uh, and you guys might know him from different movies like House of Flying Daggers he was in. I think that's one that he's really well known for in the States. Uh, was he in Infernal Affairs? The, he was. Yeah, the, the Departed is based on... But the Chinese version of what women want is extremely similar. Like it's, it's, some of it is kind of a shot for shot remake. He's really doing that Mel Gibson role and he's very well cast in it. But um, there's a sort of fantastical element to it. I, th I feel like that's the only way I can describe it. They add a little bit more of this kind of, so there's a, a little bit more surrealism to it that's not present in what women want. What women want is fairly grounded except for this idea that he can hear women's thoughts one of the the things that i really like about when he first gets his powers is or like i guess just his perception of himself as being very the like charming guy at work is instantly shattered when he can sort of hear that yeah guess what i don't like your jokes guess what i have my own dreams guess uh, what i think you're a creep yeah sarah paulson uh a very young sarah paulson plays his assistant who has her own ambitions and that he'd never even considered. And that she's really capable. Um, she even has, you know, what is it, an Ivy League career that he doesn't even think about. He just has sends her off to get coffee instead of trying to really use her and her brain and what she has to offer because he just doesn't, he doesn't see her that way, you know. It, it seems like he doesn't see any of his female coworkers that way. What I enjoy about this movie is it's doing a kind of difficult thing where you have somebody that they make you really hate. They make you think that he just sucks. You know, he's 
rude. He's lewd. He doesn't treat people with respect. He's kind of jokey with the with with men, but you don't really see him kind of developing any kind of any close relationship with someone. The movie opens with his ex-wife talking about him. So you're getting your first impression of him from his wife doing this sort of it's used as a voiceover where you're getting to see his childhood and his childhood was growing up in Las Vegas with his mom who was a showgirl and spending his time you know his male role models were men that were running the showgirls I this is just my second time seeing the, this film and I had forgotten all about that uh, introduction to the movie I thought we were just shown this character and I feel like that does a lot of heavy lifting that opening because it kind of shows you that, hey, we the filmmakers don't think that Mel Gibson's character is just, you know, one of the guys. We do think that he is messed up, and this is why. I feel like yeah. it kind of... And it doesn't feel like heavy-duty exposition either. It kind of feels like, here's a little background on this character yeah. and kind of gives you a window into why he is the way he is. Because you're overhearing a conversation while his ex-wife is getting remarried right she's getting ready to go out for her ceremony um but she's reflecting on kind of where she came from with this relationship with this guy who was really messed up and it does i think it does make him a little bit sympathetic where you kind of start with his childhood he's such a crummy person you know he has almost no relationship with his daughter it seems like she had never really stayed over uh, he doesn't even know how to interact with her at all. He doesn't know what her age is. <laughs> he thinks she's 13 when she's 15. Yeah, I mean, just like, how awful is this guy? And then when he... But he has no idea that he's awful because he's so self-centered. And so I think that's where there's some satisfaction in seeing him struggle once he starts hearing what people actually... Or what women actually think about him. Uh there's a lot of satisfaction in seeing him feel so insecure and so beaten down by the idea that, no, they think he's crappy, they think he's mean, they think he's creepy, they think, you know, they they just don't really respect him or admire him the way he thought. Because I think in his childhood, he was used to all these showgirls kind of circling around him and kissing him and treating him like a little sweetheart. Well, hey, you're a kid. This kind of epiphany leads him to go reach out to Bette Midler <laughs> in, in one scene, but a very memorable scene where she's a psychiatrist who kind of, um, uh, or therapist. No, no, she, I guess she's more of a marriage counselor. Yeah, they, she, she was She was the marriage counselor when he and his ex-wife were probably right. trying to make it work. And it's so funny that both in this and what men want, there needs to be a scene where somebody tells the person, hey, you know, this isn't a curse, it's a blessing. Because yeah. I feel like a person would intrinsically kind of figure out that they can... But I guess in his case, he, he realizes that his identity is not what he thought it was. I, I think that's where it makes sense that he needs this explained to him because he's so horrified by finding out that people think he sucks, yeah. you know? And I think in what men want, I think there's a little bit more opportunity for her to have realized this on her own, but I don't know if it's the curse of being a remake or if they thought the audience did need that moment or someone explained it to her. I think her character is sharp and smart and confident enough that she probably didn't need that push. Um, but they were still trying to kind of build out this uh, a, a relationship with another character. Um, so they, I think they left that part of it in that probably wasn't totally necessary. 
Let's uh, talk a little bit about Helen Hunt, since um, she's kind of the co-lead of the movie. And she's so charming. Yeah, this is uh, she was hot off her Oscar success from As Good As It Gets, another movie where she was uh, playing opposite um, an older man in that movie, much older, with Jack Nicholson. Ugh. What was the age difference with Mel Gibson? Seven years. Seven years. Okay, so not, so not quite as dramatic. Not as dramatic, but still a pretty big age difference. Yeah. Um, and I forgot how good she is in this movie because... I feel like on the page, she doesn't have much to do. You know, she comes in, she's got big ideas for the company, but then is quickly kind of picked apart by Mel Gibson with his new powers. Like, he's able to just literally pluck all her ideas out of her head yeah. and sort of pass them off as his own. Actively undermining her and taking credit for her ideas, which is a person who works in a, in a work environment and has seen and has seen, you know ideas co-opted by other people and different things like that it's just so infuriating and it just makes you hate him even more but he makes up for it ultimately he he even admits that he took the ideas both to her and alan alda their ultimate boss so you know he he does his things to make amends and and the the movie does a little extra work to try and to, to try and make sure that we know we're supposed to like Nick or Mel Gibson's character at the end by introducing Judy Greer's character who is suicidal and he kind of picks up on those sad thoughts, self-destructive thoughts as she's in the office and he's the first to notice she's gone. And this is, I think, where you and I disagree. Yeah. I always feel like you could cut the whole Judy Greer subplot out of the movie and it'd be stronger. Like, it kind of feels like... I think I think it's one of those things where you don't technically need that whole storyline with her, but at the same time, it's doing it's it's doing additional um, it's giving the audience the additional push to recognize that he's a good man now, and we can accept that he uh, and we can accept and admire him now. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's like they could have had him save. Uh, you know, a child outside, or they could have had him do some other sympathetic action, but I think they, they wanted to tie it into the power. So I I think you're right in a way that you don't need it, but it does do, it does kind of help get us to the other side with him because he, he really does start out so bad. You, I, it almost feels like a studio mandated note, I think is my problem with it, because I could see on the page needing something like that, but, you know, give the devil his due. Mel Gibson, I think, is just so innately likable that you don't really need him to, like, literally save this woman's life in order for right. us to like him as a character. Yeah. It's a pretty common device to have uh, someone that a person, that the, the male romantic lead is able to be kind to or to do an act of kindness for. And they even do it in You've Got Mail um, in a small, much smaller way where Tom Hanks brings the little kids, his, his technically his uncle and his great aunt, uh, but they're the small children of his father and grandfather's umpteenth marriages, um, into the bookstore where he's being sweet to them and getting them, getting them books. And uh, Meg Ryan has this opportunity to see him interacting with kids. Like, this is a pretty common device in romantic 
movies and novels where they have a child, an animal, a person that uh, that the male romantic lead has has this kind of sweet connection with to illustrate their worthiness to the reader or to the viewer. Yeah, I I don't hate it for like a a pretty long movie. Like it runs over two hours. I mean, as most Nancy Myers movies do, um, because it's kind of like a a world that you kind of want to just bathe in. (laughs) You kind of want to be in this sort of affluent world where, you know, it's it's uh, the the problems are often so minor. (laughs) I kind of like this sort of low stakes Although this is higher stakes than usual for Nancy Myers, I feel like. Well, because Judy Greer's character wants to commit suicide. Maybe He's trying that's... to intervene on her killing herself. Maybe that's what why it feels so out of place for me. Because it's so... It's almost too high stakes for, for her style. Yeah. I mean, she wasn't the original scriptwriter, though, right? She came in afterwards to do the cleanup. <clears throat> it sounds like she basically rewrote the entire script and just didn't get a credit. Because... the wga has weird rules about that similarly i mean i think that this this does help the movie but marissa tomei's character is the uh barista that he's trying to woo like that's like she again is almost like a glorified cameo i guess that character is there again just to teach him that women are human beings yeah who who knew (laughs) (laughs) he basically has just wanted to hook up with her for ages and he finally does and uh he uh, realizes that uh, uh, toying around in people's personal lives uh, has consequences. Oh, no. I think it's interesting, too, in the differences between what women want and what men want. In my, what men want, Taraji P. Henson doesn't need to fundamentally understand the male animal in order to acquire this, this client. Essentially, she works instead for of an ad agency. She works as, for, as an agency where they represent athletes, and so she not only works with Olympic athletes, but the her whale that she needs to to catch is somebody in the uh, one of the what is it they they call it the big three MLB, NBA, or NFL, and so there's an NBA player that she's trying to acquire. There's these two white agents in the company who do an unbelievably offensive presentation and they nearly lose this kid and she has to step in and she's able to kind of get into his head and understand more of what he wants because she can hear his thoughts but on some level she almost doesn't even need that because she understands what went wrong with that ad she knows that it was offensive and not at what he wanted and that he's looking for more real representation that's not this big fake oh you want to be like a rapper or something that these other guys were doing i mean i think that that's a a big difference is that in that movie she's really good at her job and in this it seems like mel gibson has sort of just been treading water with like ads that have like bikini models in them his all of his ads are based on using the male gaze yes you know can you get somebody really hot with water all over them show as much of their body as possible and then people want to buy stuff but that's not really going to get most people all the time and Mm. that's you know that might work when you're working with male ad execs or something but not necessarily with the nike women's team i feel like the the um the flip going to being able to read men's thoughts just is never going to be as interesting 
the the fundamental difference is that she's needing to hear kind of tidbits of specific information whereas he holistically just doesn't get this entire gender Mm -hmm. yeah and he's a bad person whereas she is a little bit selfish but ultimately good yeah she's really just ultimately a pretty good person that doesn't you know probably needs to work on herself a little bit but in this kind of speeds it along for her and makes it a little easier but Yeah, there's not this huge drastic change in her life that you see for in in Mel Gibson's life. And I think he has to overcome being one of the worst people. It really, he really is like Scrooge in A Christmas Carol where he needs this like supernatural intervention to become a decent human being. Yeah, whereas for her, this supernatural intervention is kind of helping straighten out her career and, and personal life. But she probably would have done okay in the end without all of this. I do really like the inclusion of the daughter character who he's completely out of touch with. Like, I mean, this movie is already, you know, packed with so many different characters that are kind of just showing him different angles of his central problem. But I think, well, I probably could have done without the uh, shopping montage that he has with her. But it's, <laughs> but... But it's the... It's the year 2000. You need something that's kind of like a makeover montage. What I was saying is I was picturing like a uh, let's go go to the theater at the mall with like a mother daughter outing. And like that scene is for the daughter. We'll see in the 15 year old try on all those prom dresses. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's funny because they cast this. uh, I I can't remember this actor's name, but he plays Milo in 24 who plays the boyfriend. Oh, yeah. It's like the second you see him, it's like, how? old is this guy like they just he's always cast as like the ultimate creep and she ashley johnson who is an alum of growing pains a tv show that i loved when i was growing up she's really sweet and strong she looks 15 so when you see the two of them together you kind of are on mel gibson's side and a little bit creeped out i think you see this this shift with uh mel gibson where his character realizes you know I was that guy. And he doesn't yeah. explicitly say it, but you can kind of see in his face in that scene. And in some of it, he's saying about how smart she was and uh, how different she is than him. You can kind of see this sadness of realizing this is what I've been doing to women and all my relationships with them is using them. And when they don't give me what I want, I just leave or I bail or I treat them like garbage because that's what he's been doing. Yeah. It's such a heartfelt scene where he's comforting his daughter after she's been abandoned at the prom by her boyfriend because she told him he wasn't ready to have sex, you know. Um, And that's such a sweet uh, moment in the movie. And to some extent, I think that does a lot more emotional work than the Judy Greer angle, but... I think so, too. I I think that's kind of why they didn't need it, because they already had the daughter to sort of soften him up. Right, yeah. That was almost his good deed. Mm -hmm. Um, But maybe he's just not active enough in that relationship for that to be the thing that endears him to us. Right. I think the other thing that's really interesting is that they show his life becomes richer, you know, as he's developing actual friendships with women. Because uh, before, you can tell he just has no emotional connection to the woman's life, including his own family, right? His own daughter. 
and they show him at work in one of the later scenes of the film where he's uh, chit-chatting with uh, ladies in the kitchenette and they're all joking about how men can suck and how they seem really bonny. You can tell he's having so much fun. He's laughing. They're laughing. They're sad to see him walk out and leave. And it's just how different a person's life is when they take an interest in the people around them rather than seeing them as disposable and just existing for whatever you might need from them. And it's such a, ba it seems like such a basic thing, you know, that this, that this film is illustrating, but it, it, it's, um, I think a good reminder of, of how important it is to take a little time to recognize the folks around you. I did feel like the ending was a little bit abrupt. I was surprised that he ends the movie without a job, but I guess he can get a job anywhere. Yeah, and he's understanding of why he gets fired, because Helen Hunt ultimately does have to fire him because he stole her ideas and presented them as his own, and mm -hmm. he admitted that to her. But you know, they're still together. They said, I love you. They did a little kiss. I do hesitate to really believe she could be in love with him. Especially after all the ill that he's done to her yeah although she didn't know that right i mean she although he admits to it he admits to it but i think she doesn't know that he was actually reading her mind right he didn't go into that level of detail and so for her i think it still seems a little bit innocuous and well he couldn't have stolen all of my ideas you know you could see where maybe she'd be glossing over it a little bit because for her it doesn't fundamentally makes sense unless she knows that he could hear her thoughts and steal them like will that. that relationship work when he's no longer able to read her thoughts because we should mention that when he's running to save judy greer there's a freak electrical storm that uh reverts that takes that power away so by the end of the yeah. movie he no longer is able to do that and that seemed to be the entire reason that she liked him because of his insights well is that know, something that you think he loses i mean i mean on a deeper level i don't think so i think this is where they they make some choices to to kind of help distance us from this idea that he's able to better understand women after hearing their thoughts but pointedly in the date that they have before the end of the film when they're talking you don't the audience isn't hearing her thoughts the way they normally would they're kind of organically having this conversation we understand that he could probably hear what she's thinking and the conversation might be flowing better because of that but they pointedly don't have us listening into how she's feeling to show him manipulating her the way he manipulated Marisa Tomei earlier in the film. So I think they're already kind of making that that shift for us to try and get us away from thinking that he's only bonded to her because of the mind reading. And no, it's really that they did have a connection because he is a more empathetic, sympathetic person who can who is trying to imagine and you know what she might be feeling that sort of thing so i think the film is suggesting likely that he's grown enough as a person that he doesn't need this anymore who knows if he actually has right because it's not yeah. that much time has I, passed. I like to believe that he's permanently redeemed but <laughs> probably <laughs> not <laughs> he may revert to his old ways who knows 
but it is an it is interesting that they start to make that shift for us and you don't really notice it and they're also shifting how the characters dress right like he starts the movie just dressed all in black and toward the end of the movie he's wearing lighter colors to sort of lighten him up you know he's friendly he's open he likes women they're people now <laughs> It doesn't irritate me to acknowledge that there's a lot of this, but it's also kind of the fun of it is just so absurd that this man is so crappy that he has to understand women are people too. And again, I think this is how, even though it's brief, the introduction of the movie does so much for the rest of it because it tells us that this was a person who was molded into being this way. He, as He's, a child. Yeah. yeah. He's not supposed to be like an archetypal pig necessarily. It's not innate in him, yeah. I think, is the, is the thing that it's, you know, it kind of tells us, right? Is that he was this innocent child who happened to be in these circumstances that were totally abnormal. And then this is how he turned out. It makes it easier to buy into his redemption. It is weird that he has a picture of himself as a child surrounded by showgirls. <laughs> above his bed i think that's hilarious i think it's really weird I mean, yeah i mean it's very sick but it's it just it's like an early window into his character all right Lindsay. well it's that time do you buy it rent it or tape over it personally i do buy it just because i really enjoy this movie it's definitely flawed it's directly acknowledging this guy sucks, but it gives him a chance to work things out and ultimately become a better person. He's a little bit more empathetic. It definitely has a lot of like gender binary, gender norms that are outdated, but I think in the context of when it came out, it makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. A hint of gay panic in there when he has to pretend to be yeah. gay. Despite that, for me personally, I find it delightful. I think it is one of those movies that where if I hadn't seen it until my current age now, I probably wouldn't enjoy it quite as much. I have the benefit of having seen it when I was younger and didn't, maybe less worldly. It got to you early. <laughs> it got to me early. Much like uh, Mel Gibson's showbiz uh, upbringing in yeah. this movie. I think if for people who haven't seen it before, it's probably more of a rent it. Might enjoy it. Maybe it's not going to be your cup of tea. Really depends. Uh, Sean, what do you say? Buy it, rent it, or tape over it? I think I'm a rent it. I, I enjoy this movie. It's not my favorite Nancy Myers movie, but the premise is a lot of fun. Um, I'm, I'm a sucker for a good uh, story of redemption. I believe people can be redeemed. And, uh, you know, these leads are very funny and charming and... Anything that can distract me from the Mel Gibson of today for a couple hours is a lot of fun. Yeah, I think that's the biggest baggage for this movie. If you don't, if you haven't already seen it, encountering it without having that sort of clear view, what is it, BM before Mel, <laughs> and then after. I mean, he was probably always kind of crazy. Oh, just I'm the, sure. It's just more that we have a clearer picture of it now. But I'm not crazy, but we're talking, you know bigoted oh yeah yeah, yeah. definitely and, i don't mean to, to and that's not something that somebody spontaneously becomes and i think that's the thing that's a little bit unfortunate but you know i i think that's where it's something to think about of separating an artist 
and and the the thing that they create and the and the person themselves sometimes that's really hard to separate and for some things I'm, I'm not able to kind of split that up but in this case it's I find it a little bit easier to do to kind of have that sort of I don't know double think where I you know I think about this character just as himself separately from Mel Gibson and his complications but still kind of both of those things are in my mind at once yeah I, I definitely agree with that uh one last comparison because you mentioned redemption with the the newer film with Taraji P. Henson. I think it is interesting because this really is a film of redemption and hers is not so much. It's it's more just about general development and progression as a person, but not as redemption. She's not, her character is flawed, but she's not necessarily having to make up for being a terrible person like he is. All right, Sean, what are we going to watch next time? Well, it's the holiday season, so I say we watch Gremlins. <laughs> it's kind of crazy we haven't covered Gremlins yet on this show. Uh, one of the great Christmas horror movies. I even have a Gremlins sweater that Sean gave me, and the <laughs> illustration of it looks a lot like Baby Yoda. Gizmo from the Gremlins movies looks a lot like... I mean, the, the, the pointy ears, the cute little face... You take the fur off. I think that's why the illustration looks especially like Baby Yoda. You ignore the fur element. Pretty similar. I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song Mandatory Groove. You can hear more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. Uh, you can also reach out to us at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com. And then we'd love to hear your feedback. Please rate and review on your favorite podcast app. That's it for Tape Heads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>